Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. This era in human civilization is all about freedom of speech, what it means and where it is headed. Joining us to discuss this is the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union, the Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Skeptic, author and political commentator Toby Young. Toby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexandra. Growing up in the mid-90s, uh, free speech was always one of those topics that we thought was completely settled. At no point did it ever occur to me that I'd be sitting here talking to you about Western censorship of speech. Toby, why have you decided to pick this particular topic to pick up your pitchfork and spend your life championing? Well, I suppose, um, <laughs> like you, I thought free speech was one of the settled values of the West. It was uh, a human right recognised by the European C Court of Human Rights, the UN Convention on Human Rights. Um, and it was the most important human right of all, because without free speech, we can't defend any of our other rights. Um, uh, but um, in recent years, it's been under quite a lot of assault. Um, I started the Free Speech Union in 2020. And um, because I thought free speech had never been in greater peril across the English speaking world than at any time since the Second World War. And then that was in February 2020. And then immediately two things happened, which imperiled free speech even further. First of all, there was the pandemic, um, uh, the lockdown policy. Um, no one was really allowed to criticize it. If you did, particularly if you worked in the medical profession or if you were a scientist at a university, you got into trouble if you were critical, if you questioned the wisdom of the government's pandemic response. And that wasn't just true in England, that was true everywhere. Um, and, then, and then in addition, after that, we had um, the death of George Floyd and the explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement. And suddenly, if you criticised any of the sacred beliefs of that movement, i.e. that most English-speaking countries are systemically racist, uh, then again, you risked being cancelled, losing your livelihood. So it got worse by an order of magnitude. I thought we touched rock bottom in February 2020, but it suddenly got a great deal worse. And so the Free Speech Union um, is um, has been very busy. So we, we, it's a membership organisation that exists to stand up for the speech rights of its members, as well as campaign for free speech more widely. Since we do research, we publish FAQs on things like what to do if your boss asks you to declare your preferred gender pronouns in workplace emails and you don't want to do that? What are your rights? Uh, but in addition, what we mainly do, about 50% of what we do, um, is casework. So we have two full-time legal officers, two full-time case officers, and we've helped about 2,000, more than 2,000 people um, since we were set up just over three years ago. Um, and, um, you know, we, 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 we've... I'm, I've been surprised, actually, by how effective the Free Speech Union has been at defending people's rights. If you push back against outrage mobs, if you don't allow them to always get their way, they quite often disperse, move on to attack weaker targets. So it's been pretty effective. We have chalked up one victory after another. Well, look, let's just backtrack a little bit. It's quite difficult to work out when free speech became a problem for the West because you've correctly identified that things like Black Lives Matter and the pandemic uh, obviously were choke points of this whole free speech problem, but it's not the source of the issue. 
Now, I do remember that as I was growing up, I was on uh, early social media platforms like Tumblr, for instance, and I started to notice that although it was a hive of creativity at that time, there were these uh, trigger warnings that started and suddenly people were uh, almost virtue signaling via their little trigger warning uh, messages. And then suddenly you couldn't say something and then uh, it was tumbling on from there. But do you remember what actually caused this issue? Is it a generation that grew up not valuing free speech? Or is it just, do we lose our way? Like, was there a point? Is there any, do you know where it started basically? Yes, well, I think there are a few explanations. Um, let's start with um, a relatively superficial explanation and move on to a deeper explanation. So I think the relatively superficial explanation is that the decline in the respect for free speech um, coincided with the advent of social media. Um, so um, uh, one of the things J.S. Mill and Alexis de Tocqueville warn about um, in their seminal works in the 19th century about democracies and democratic societies and the importance of liberty. They warn about the tyranny of the majority. And um, what Tocqueville in particular was thinking about was in America, in small rural communities, in towns, um, it was quite difficult, in spite of America's professed belief in liberty, for dissenters to speak up. They were worried about being socially ostracized by their friends and neighbors and within their churches if they challenged the prevailing orthodoxies within their communities. That was the tyranny of the majority, and it was a weakness in democratic societies. But as those societies became more urbanized um, and people were able to leave their rural communities, move into big cities, they acquired a bit more anonymity. They were no longer as oppressed by the prevailing majority view. They could form little clubs with other like-minded people. If they wanted to be gay, they could be gay. If they wanted uh, to be dissenters, if they didn't want to uh, go to church, it was all much more, it was much easier in these more anonymous, larger urban environments. But social media reintroduced um, the kind of oppressive atmosphere of small rural communities. Suddenly, if you dissented from a prevailing orthodoxy, if you were a bit eccentric, you could be piled on, you could be punished by the majority within your kind of peer group, within your community on social media. So it resurrected this kind of small-minded provincial intolerance of kind of mid 19th century small town America. Um, so I think that's the superficial explanation. I, I think the deeper about, explanation. Can I ask you about that one first before you move on? Because I was part of the social media movement as it started. They used to call me a fandom queen. I used to manage huge groups of uh, online users. And social media was fine. For the first five or so years, it was a fantastic creative environment. And it wasn't until the advertisers and the politicians decided that they could use the power of social media that I noticed that censorship became a thing. So is it possible that the influence of politics has had an impact on social media becoming coercive? Well, I guess we have to distinguish between the rise in self-censorship. So I think that social media certainly contributed to a rise in self-censorship, people being less willing to say contentious, controversial things for fear of being piled on, cancelled, 
uh, on social media. Um, but yeah, it also um, has enabled the state and state agencies and state-funded NGOs to engage in actual censorship as well. Um, I think the, I mean, the, 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 there seemed to be a sea change in the thinking of kind of global elites across the English-speaking world, but not just the English-speaking world. Um, so the 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 um, attitude towards bad speech, inaccurate speech, wrong speech, uh, what we now call misinformation and disinformation, the attitude was summed up in a famous Supreme Court case, I think in 1927, by um, a Supreme Court justice called Louis Brandeis, who essentially said that the best remedy for bad speech is not enforced silence, is not to suppress things you disagree with or you think are factually wrong or misleading, but to allow for more and better speech. This was called the counter-speech doctrine. And that was the prevailing wisdom within liberal governing elites for, you know, 75 years or so. Uh, but with the advent of social media, um, the, the, it, there was this kind of elite panic. Um, people thought, oh, my God, you know, all this bad speech, all this misleading information is leading ordinary people down these dangerous paths. Um, uh, they can't be trusted with this new free speech platform. We have to try and control what it is they're allowed to say. And that, 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 that suspicion of social media, that mistrust of ordinary people speaking their minds on social media was accelerated by the victory of Trump in the 2016 presidential election and Brexit in the uh, 2016 EU referendum in the UK. And the explanation that elites, liberal elites in both countries came up with for those two cataclysmic electoral defeats, their explanation wasn't that you know, the values of ordinary people were different to theirs. It wasn't that they hadn't won the argument in the public square. It wasn't that their neoliberal globalist um, approach was creating a lot of um, harmful consequences for ordinary people losing their jobs, seeing their wages suppressed, uh, immigration soaring out of control, etc. It was nothing to do with that in their eyes. It was just because these poor dupes had been misled by bad actors, you know, whether it was Russian bot farms or billionaires acting in their own interests. So, so that then that then became this kind of this 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 kind of impetus uh, within elites, particularly in America, in the UK, but also Australia, also continental Europe, um, to try and um, censor misinformation and disinformation to suppress it in the hope that people wouldn't be misled in this way again. Um, and that's why we've seen the emergence of the um, uh, censorship industrial um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, apparatus that Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, uh, Schellenberger have written about, um, uh, uh, whereby the US State Department, the US Department of Defense, the British Foreign Office, um, various Whitehall departments here um, have funded agencies, some of them semi-official, some of them staffed by former intelligence officers, as well as NGOs, uh, which specialize in identifying misinformation and disinformation and flagging it up and encouraging social media companies to suppress or permanently ban accounts they regard as trafficking in this kind of poison. <laughs> so I think we've, we've certainly social media has, has also coincided not just with self-censorship, but with the rise of actual censorship too. 
It's caused this kind of elite panic, the abandonment of the counter-speech doctrine, a loss of trust in ordinary people, and this feeling that they have to be guided by us, their moral and intellectual superiors. So they vote for uh, candidates like Biden, and uh, they're pro-EU and not anti-EU. Yeah, I've noticed that there's not a whole lot of interest in misinformation and disinformation about the random conspiracy theories out there in the world. Like, no one is going to ban you off Twitter if you talk about, I don't know, alien spaceships in the Antarctica, right? That's not going to get you banned. They seem to be more interested in speech that impacts corporations or speech that impacts a certain political message. If you look at the community guidelines on places like Twitter, it's about net zero. You can't say mean things about the climate change movement. You can't say nasty things about uh, vaccine companies. You can't you know, come up there as a victim. You, that, that's actually what I find to be the most disturbing. If you've been injured by a company, you can't then go online and say, hey, I've been hurt. Now, in my opinion, censorship of that kind is actually dangerous to Western civilization. Would you would you agree? Yes, it certainly is dangerous. Um, I mean, suppressing free speech um, is always going to be in the interests of the establishment of the powers that be, because what they what what they don't like is criticism. Um, if they've made mistakes, they don't want people to draw attention to them. And um, but being able to do that is 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 essential in any democratic society. We have to be able to hold the rich and powerful to account, and that's one of the reasons free speech is so important and should be defended. Um, uh, and you know, I, I hope that we can. Um, collectively push back against these attempts to silence criticism on social media. I think the fact that Elon Musk has bought Twitter is positive. Um, Twitter has become less censorious, slightly freer since Elon Musk took, took the reins, although he has just appointed this new CEO who may not be yeah. as permissive as pro-free speech as him. We're and all, guess, we're all side-eyeing the new that. CEO. We're all looking at her going, are you, are you 100% sure, Elon? I mean, I know your intentions are good, but we're a little nervous about who he's picked. Yeah, I think, um, I think the, I, I don't know um, whether, um, uh, People point to her association with the World Economic Forum um, and her um, chumminess with advertisers when she was at CNBC um, but um, or, or NBC. But I think, um, uh, you know, it, it would be unfair to kind of prejudge her in that way. Perhaps she'll perhaps she'll be very good. I think the, the, the bigger worry is that um, Elon Musk was clearly pivoting from an advertiser funded platform to a um, uh, 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 a subscriber-funded platform. And subscriber-funded platforms generally have much more free speech because there is no small body of influential finances um, of the platform who can control what's said on the platform. So YouTube, the reason YouTube is, is quite a censorious platform, uh, people are often kicked off if they criticise the COVID vaccines or if they're critical about the net zero agenda. Um, the reason for that is because it's an advertiser funded platform and YouTube wants the people at Google wants YouTube to be a safe space for advertisers because that's YouTube's main source of revenue. So they don't want to put off advertisers by allowing too many dissenting, contentious, unorthodox voices 
on YouTube because then the advertisers won't feel safe advertising their wares in that environment. And that used to be true of Twitter. And I, my understanding is that Elon Musk thought, well, if I want it to become a more pro-free speech platform, if I want it to be a genuinely free digital town square, then um, I've got to shift to a subscriber funded platform, which is going to be in which advertisers have much less power. And we won't need to worry so much about keeping it as a kind of antiseptic, safe, uncontentious platform. But that didn't really that doesn't appear to have worked out terribly well for Elon Musk. I'm not sure how many people have actually bought the blue ticks and become subscribers. I have. And, you know, I'm sure millions of people have, but maybe not enough to make it financially viable. So the impression you get is the reason he's bringing in Linda, this new CEO, um, is to make the platform more advertiser friendly. And it's that, I think, rather than the attitude of hers, it's that which may mean it becomes a less permissive uh, platform than it has been under him since he bought it. So I think that's the worry. We want it, if possible, to be subscriber funded and not advertiser funded, because the moment advertisers can dictate what's on the platform, that's the end of free speech. It's quite a bizarre demand from advertisers to want to control the audience that they're advertising to because they stick up billboards and put uh, messages on the side of buses and they can't control their audience in those cases. But I remember uh, there was a, a pretty funny headline in The Guardian about you, why Toby Young and other robust white men are using free speech to whip universities. Obviously, the uh, fight to uphold free speech has some uh, tension and some drawbacks. Have you actually found yourself in trouble with the censorial overlords? Uh, yes, um, I'm, uh, I'm quite often suspended from Facebook. Um, so, um, particularly, uh, uh, we have, we have a daily skeptic account on Facebook. So the daily skeptic is a news publishing site I run, which, um, which targets, um, the net zero dogma, um, it challenges the wisdom of government's pandemic responses around the world, draws attention to things like vaccine harms, and it also just lampoons woke gobbledygook in all its manifestations. Um, and um, it's been quite successful, gets about two million page views a month. We can't get any advertising, obviously, because various anti-misinformation and anti-disinformation ratings agency, you know, give the Daily Skeptic virtually zero out of 100. So no advertisers would feel safe advertising on the platform. So we're entirely, almost entirely funded by donations from readers and well-wishers. Um, but quite often stuff that I post on the Facebook um, Daily Skeptic account is either removed or results in me being temporarily suspended. Um, what else? Um, yeah, okay, last year, uh, PayPal um, uh, deplatformed me. It, uh, within 15 minutes, it cancelled uh, my own personal PayPal account, the PayPal account of the Daily Skeptic, and the PayPal account of the Free Speech Union. Um, and it didn't, it said that we'd breached the, all three of us apparently, had all three accounts had breached the acceptable use policy. But it wasn't really clear exactly what it was we'd done, which breached the policy. It was all very opaque. Uh, uh, it was very difficult to get any kind of coherent explanation out of PayPal. Difficult to talk to anyone, actually, at PayPal. I wrote to the uh, CEO. I wrote to the head of PayPal in Europe. Didn't get a response. Uh, so I went public and um, launched a campaign to try and embarrass PayPal into restoring those accounts. And I managed to get 
uh, uh, over 40 MPs and peers in the House of Lords to write a letter to the then business secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, urging him to hold PayPal to account um, and talked about it on television and in newspapers. Uh, and um, within about two weeks of this campaign launching, PayPal caved in. They restored all three accounts. And now the Free Speech Union uh, is campaigning to try and make it unlawful for big payment processors, financial services companies uh, to censor accounts, to kick people off their platforms for purely political reasons, not because they've done anything illegal, but because the companies disapprove of the views they're advocating. Um, and we're making some headway there. And I think it's very important uh, that we do put some rules in place to prevent these big financial companies from engaging in this kind of sinister form of cancel culture. Um, we saw it um, in Canada, um, Justin Trudeau uh, demonetizing, uh, withdrawing, getting banking facilities withdrawing, withdrawn from the truckers engaging in the trucker protest. It's, it's essentially the Chinese social credit system being rolled out by these unscrupulous politicians and the CEOs of these large international corporations. And we need to snuff it out before we before it's re essentially replicated uh, across the West. Um, but I was also um, cancelled myself in 2018. So I was appointed to uh, the board of a new regulator called the Office for Students by the then British Prime Minister Theresa May. And um, and my role was wildly exaggerated by the Guardian newspaper, who described me as Theresa May's new universities czar. I wasn't a new university czar. I was just one of 15 non-executive directors of this new regulatory body uh, working in higher education. And um, so the offense archaeologists immediately went to work sifting through everything I'd said or written, dating back more than 30 years, trying to find evidence that I was an unsuitable person to be Theresa May's universities are. And um, uh, within, you know, 24 hours, they discovered a kind of Tutankhamun tomb's worth of um, uh, unsuitable material because I've been a, you know, provocative, controversial journalist for more than 30 years. And um, a petition was started urging Theresa May to sack me. It got 220,000 signatures. Uh, a special urgent question was asked in the House of Commons about my appointment and one Labour MP after another lined up to denounce me as, you know, uh, a, a terrible devil-like figure who had no business going anywhere near universities. Um, there was a pack of journalists parked on my doorstep 24-7. My kids uh, stopped going to school because they didn't want to run the gauntlet every morning. Um, so I stepped down from that position after about a week um, of, of this kind of this maelstrom. Um, and, uh, and I stupidly, in retrospect, apologized for some of the more idiotic, sophomoric things I'd said over the years, um, which had apparently offended lots of people. And um, and I thought that would draw a line under the whole affair and I could just go back to my life, carry on as before. But um, it was actually like throwing um, a hunk of raw meat to a shoal of piranha fish. And uh, the council mob then came for me in every other position I held. I ended up losing five positions, including my full-time job. So I was well and truly cancelled. I lost half a stone. I called it the public humiliation diet. But when that was happening to me, um, when I was at the centre of that kind of storm, um, I, 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 I really wanted to be able to turn to um, a really 
good professional organization that could give me uh, some proper advice. Should I apologize or not? Will that make things worse? Will that make things better? Uh, who else has been through this? Can you put me in touch with them? All these people that are lying about me on social media, would it help if I sued them for defamation? Should I go on the telly to try and defend myself or is it better to lie doggo? I mean, I really wanted some advice. I wanted some moral support, some psychological counseling, and there was no one to turn to. And talking to people who have been cancelled, it's that sense of isolation, of not knowing what to do as your career, you know, you've spent decades building up, is just burning to the ground in front of you. You don't know how to put out the fire. There's few people want to help you. Your friends often run a mile because they don't want to, you know, pick up any um, uh, collateral damage. Um, uh, and um, so that was really the wellspring of the idea for the Free Speech Union. There needs to be an organization that can support people when they find themselves at the eye of one of these storms, when the cancel mob comes for them. Absolutely. And the last time I was cancelled, I had told the Lord Mayor of Sydney to go jump in the lake. And apparently that was somehow uh, offensive or insulting. I'm not quite sure how. But uh, concerns about free speech predominantly seem to relate to political opinion. Even cancellations like yours tend to be politically motivated. And when we talk about censorship today in the modern world, almost all of it is about trying to demoralise and to remove some kind of political opponent. Is the free discussion of political ideas in danger currently in the West from the censorial mobs? Well, uh, it most definitely is. And I think that, 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 um, that brings me to the deeper reason for uh, the free speech crisis. I think that um, the deeper reason is that um, there's something quite unnatural about free speech. It seems to um, fly in the face of human nature. We are by nature tribal creatures. Um, we form communities which coalesce around certain shared values, certain uh, sacred orthodoxies. And historically, human beings have always been quite intolerant of those that challenge that core set of values which are at the heart of their communities, their tribes. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and often, you know, that's why wars start. Um, it's why we had McCarthyism. It's why we had the Cultural Revolution in China. It's why we had the witch hunts in Salem, Massachusetts. There is this kind of, I think, natural, the natural human response when faced with someone challenging their most cherished beliefs is to try and destroy them, to expel them, to excommunicate them. Um, and um, we have, I think, um, as, as, as there's been less consensus about what those values should be, as societies have become more secular, more multi-ethnic, more multicultural, so there's been a bit more tolerance for dissent for disagreement and free speech has emerged as a mechanism which enables us enables people of different backgrounds different faiths with very different values to live together in these kind of urban metropolitan areas um, but um, uh, as as a new public morality has emerged and I think we have seen in the past 15 years the growth of what I call the 21st century's first major religion. People refer to it as the great awakening. So, you know, call it uh, social justice theory, call it the successor ideology, 
wokest day. It is a new religion and it has gradually become the public morality. It is now the official morality of most institutions, museums, art galleries, universities, a lot of political parties, the public sector. Um, and as that new public morality has become embedded, so dissent has become much less tolerated. And it's almost as though we're reverting to our kind of default tribal natures and becoming much less tolerant much more enthusiastic about expelling anyone who challenges that core set of woke sacred values. Um, you know, the idea that sex as well as gender is a social construct. It's hard to challenge that. Um, that Britain, America, Australia is systemically racist. Hard to challenge that. Um, the idea that um, people are defined by their membership of particular uh, groups, identity groups, whether a racial identity group or an identity group based around your sexual orientation, and that you can rank these groups according to how oppressed they are, with the most oppressed being the most sacred and the most virtuous, the most revered. It's hard to challenge that. These sacred values have become embedded in our institutions. It's not quite you know, we haven't, we're not quite where we were with kind of uh, pre-Reformation Catholicism in Europe or post-Reformation Protestantism. But we do, we have seen, I think, the emergence of this new, very powerful, very dogmatic, very intolerant public morality. And that, I think, is why free speech at present is under so much threat. We're, we're defaulting to our much more intolerant, tribal, atavistic natures, where we don't want to hear people challenge our sacred values. We just want rid of them. Well, that actually brings me nicely into one of my final questions. Uh, you talk about wokeism as being a type of religion. For most of human history, the arts of any kind of civilization has revolved around the worship of whatever that uh, society's gods are. I mean, certainly in European countries, it was the church that was handing out the funds to artists to create these beautiful works of art. Well, in today's world, we're seeing things like the Hollywood Awards now giving a paint-by-numbers style set of demands to filmmakers if they want to be honoured by the Academy. Even on th places like the BBC, you can't even produce a show unless you meet a set of diversity quotas. And so the art of telling a story is no longer about telling a good story or even about telling a genuine story as it actually happened. You now have to almost worship at the church of woke and to uphold this new uh, religious style set of values. Is this destroying our ability to have a thriving arts community? Is this a, an insidious way to control the minds and the, the, the stories that give our generation hope? Yes, I think it's a really sinister development. It isn't just free speech that's been under assault in the past 15 to 20 years, um, like never before. Um, it's also freedom of expression. Um, and um, uh, we see it um, certainly in the UK, um, the emergence of sensitivity readers in the publishing world, uh, who are essentially um, paid censors who go through manuscripts and take out anything likely to trigger the readers or likely to result in a cancel mob forming up on Twitter to try and get an author cancelled. Um, we see it in the theatre. We see it in dance. Um, if you don't subscribe to this very narrow set of 
progressive orthodoxies. It's very difficult to get funding. It's very difficult to find a venue that will stage your particular um, uh, uh, performance. Um, and um, I think, but I, I think it, it's obviously um, terrible. And as you say, it inhibits people's ability to express themselves, to say what they feel, to create art, to tell stories that resonate with people. Um, and I think we, we, we've, I mean, the entertainment industry, I think, is finally, the Hollywood entertainment industry is finally waking up to the fact that they're going to lose a lot of money if they continue to um, uh, only allow people to make films, television programs uh, within this very kind of narrow trench. Films which express these kind of pious, woke orthodoxies tend to do very poorly. Um the new Batman film was actually shelved by Warner Brothers um, before it was even released, even though they'd spend a hundred million on it um, because it was thought to be irredeemably woke. The highest grossing movie of last year was Top Gun Maverick, you know. Um, so uh, uh, films like Bros and She Said and Strange World and Lightyear, they all tanked. Um, so there doesn't seem to be much public appetite for this kind of woke gobbledygook being kind of churned out like as if by a propaganda factory in Nazi Germany. Um, so, um, uh, so I think that um, yeah, it, it is an extremely disturbing development. But in some ways, it, it, this kind of overreach, this attempt to control every aspect of the culture um, uh, to stifle human creativity could in the end be quite helpful because I think one of the challenges I've had running the Free Speech Union has been persuading young, progressive students, recent graduates, persuading them to care about free speech. They think everything's going their way. All the powers that be are on their side. So why do they need to stand up for free speech? It'll only help, you know, male, pale and stale conservatives like me. And they've had it their own way for too long. It's time to allow other voices to speak, whatever. Um, uh, and I try and persuade them that, well, it may be that you're not being censored on social media um, because everything you say, uh, the censors agree with. Um, but in due course, the wind may change. You know, speech restrictions are like poison gas. This is a great metaphor that Ira Glasser, the head of the ACLU during its kind of most legendary phase before it became captured by the woke church back in the 60s and 70s. Ira Glasser said that speech restrictions are like poison gas. If you're on the battlefield, you have the enemy in your sights. It can sometimes seem like a good idea to release the poison gas. But the problem is the wind can change. And that's what I try and persuade these progressive students that uh, why they should care about free speech. Sooner or later, fashions will change. You won't be in power anymore. Your church will begin to fade in its influence and reach. And you'll need free speech protections just as we need them now. So it's short-sighted to abandon free speech. It's it's something that everyone benefits from, not just conservatives. But that, that argue, it's quite hard to make that argument land. They just don't believe that, that the wind's ever going to change, you know. Um, but um, I think if you can point to restrictions on freedom of expression, if you can point to bands being cancelled, artists they admire being cancelled, you know, Picasso, Picasso was cancelled earlier this year. Um, uh, th then, then it begins to kind of, then the point begins to hit home. They think, yeah, 
maybe I don't care so much about free speech, but I do care about freedom of expression. I do care about the arts. I care about music and film and television. Um, and I and I think you're, you you might you might be onto something in saying that they've become a lot duller, a lot more boring over the past kind of fifteen years or so. People cannot you know express themselves in the way they want to. That that, that so it's quite helpful from the point of view of winning the free speech argument in the public square that the kind of woke commissars, the witch finder generals are coming for the arts. I hate to break it to you, but uh, uh, a lot of the university students these days aren't well enough educated to know about Picasso. So sorry about that one, Toby. <laughs> but uh, look, you've actually brought me perfectly to our final question, and that is regarding universities. And this particularly is what has disturbed me most of all. Are you concerned that academia has raised an entire generation or even, I, I might argue, two generations that hate the concept of free speech and debate and would rather sit there quite literally screaming down a megaphone and beating drums and swearing than actually engage in a conversation about a particular topic? When they grow up and these people become the leaders of our civilization, that can't possibly be healthy for not only the future of civilization, but for the future of democracy as a concept. Yeah, I think that is really uh, worrisome. Um, and um, I guess about um, a fifth, maybe even a quarter of the cases the Free Speech Union takes on are cases of students and academics um, who found themselves in trouble for challenging prevailing orthodoxies on campus. Um, and um, I guess the really disturbing thing isn't so much the intolerance of students the success of activists in getting people no platformed, ostracizing anyone who challenges their very narrow dogma. The more worrying thing is the absolute absence of backbone on the part of the university administrators. I mean, what I was talking about before about free speech not being um, it not being um, a natural mode, tolerating critics dissenters is not a natural human impulse. You have to work hard at it. We have these institutions that have grown up. We have the free press. We have great universities like Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Princeton, the University of Sydney. They are the, they are the stewards. They've been entrusted with preserving this precious and fragile inheritance. Um, and they're, they're not doing a great job of doing that. Um, for the most part, university administrators just buckle when um, an outrage mob forms up and demands that agenda-critical feminists be no-platformed. It's quite unusual these days to see university administrators, vice-chancellors stand up to these student mobs and say, no, free speech is the lifeblood of this institution and we need to defend it. You need to become better more resilient at coping with intellectual challenge and understanding how to defend your values. You're not going to be able to defend them if you don't know what the criticisms are. As J.S. Mill said, someone who knows only his side of an argument knows little of that. Um, so, um, yeah, it's incredibly important. We have had, we have made some headway in uh, in England recently. So um, uh, the government um, passed an act of parliament called the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act last week, which will create slightly more robust protections for free speech on campus in England and Wales. Uh, and it also creates a couple of enforcement mechanisms to hold administrators' feet to the fire if they don't discharge these new legal duties to protect 
freedom of speech and academic freedom on campus. So that's that 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 was an important victory, which the Free Speech Union we've been campaigning for that particular bill uh, for more than three years. So that was a that was a great moment seeing that pass. I think that will improve things a little bit. Uh, but it is a, a crisis. The, the free speech crisis in universities is 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 unfolding across the English speaking world uh, and increasingly now in continental Europe. And it is a potential disaster for our civilization, not not least because Western civilization, the success of liberal democracies depends upon a thriving, vibrant higher education sector. Um, and, uh, you know, we still have some um, uh, uh, world beating universities, but fewer and fewer. We're gradually seeing Chinese universities overtake, you know, Western universities in the global league tables. And academics tell me that in certain fields, you know, if they, if they actually have less freedom of speech than their colleagues do in China. Not if you want to talk about politics, if you want to criticize the Chinese Communist Party, obviously. But if you're a biologist, for instance, if you're an evolutionary biologist, you can teach your subjects at the University of Beijing in a way you, you really struggle to do now um, at Ivy League universities or Russell Group universities in the UK, because people will freak out if you tell them that sex is binary, you know, or that some of our um, uh, some of our personality traits are genetically influenced. You know, these are heresies now. Um, uh, whereas in China, you can freely discuss at least those things. And that's shocking, a shocking state of affairs. And we will quickly, I think, be eclipsed by China and other totalitarian countries if we don't sort out the problem, the lack of free speech in our universities. Well, it sounds like it's actually going to be a pretty long haul and we're nowhere near winning this yet. But uh, Toby, where can people come to support you and to support free speech in general? Okay, so um, uh, if, they, if they're interested in The Daily Skeptic, the address is dailyskeptic.org, and that's skeptic with a C, not a K, dailyskeptic.org. Um, and we post about five or six new pieces every day, quite a few of them original pieces. We have lots of really interesting academics and intellectuals and journalists writing for the publication. And, you know, it's, it's nothing but heresy. It's sedition 24-7. So... I think your viewers will enjoy it. Um, and if they are interested in joining the Free Speech Union, and we do accept overseas members, it's half price for overseas members, go to freespeechunion, all one word, dot org. But I should say we're hoping to set up an Australian sister organization. I'm talking to some people in Australia about setting up an Australian free speech union. There is one in New Zealand. There's one in South Africa. My vision is one day for there to be a free speech union in every country in the English-speaking world, and I hope Australia will be the next one. Oh, we could certainly use some free speech down here. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining us, and that's all that we have time for. I'm Alexandra Marshall. We will catch you next week.